Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Here's the words of George Squire of the 44th Indiana writing to his wife in 1863. There is no picket fighting now. In fact, the armies are on quite intimate terms. When they meet, the first thing is to shake hands, then a chew of tobacco, then sit down and chat. The parting is that of old friends, a hearty shake of hand, many wishes of good luck, a goodbye, and they walk in separate directions, mutually pleased with each other. Thus it is today. Tomorrow both armies may be transformed into demons, each recklessly striving to annihilate the other. How could this be? We'll find out tonight from Professor Lauren Thompson, author of Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. When we talk with Professor Thompson tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, which is also in Greenville, because it's still the COVID year of 2021 and we're not teaching on campus yet. Even if I were on campus, I would not be speaking for the university, nor would my guest speak for anyone but herself, as we always do here. I have to say I miss doing the show from my office on campus, in part because we do these live on Wednesday nights, 7 p.m., and when they're over at 8, I come home, and the family has long since had dinner. So that means I stop at uh, cookout in on, on 10th Street and get some takeout fast food 
that's Cookout, uh, Greenville's premier fast food drive through restaurant, not a paid sponsor of Civil War Talk Radio. If I could get them to do that or just get some burgers every week, that would be great. Um, but but Cookout is not an official sponsor. Last week we had an actual sponsor, Civil War Trails, and uh, uh, I stand by my recommendation for them. Uh, as I would for a cookout, if you came to visit me here, we could go get a, a cookout tray, the best combo in town. But they're not paying me, so let's talk about something else. Um, it's the end of the semester, April 2021. Uh, looking forward to hopefully getting back to normal in the fall, having an in-person uh, commencement this year uh, under strict conditions, but at least it won't be online. That'll be better. The baseball team is doing great here, but last week and couldn't play their games in Houston because Houston had too much uh, contact tracing and canceled after the team had arrived, I might add. And all I can say about that is it's just as well because uh, the University of Houston baseball team sucks so badly that it would actually hurt ECU's ratings even if we swept them under the RPI rules. Uh, we would actually lose points just for playing them. Uh, so, so there. Uh, it's also the end of the semester. April is the uh, typically the most stressful month in the academic year, and this year I'm teaching a uh, course in American military history, second uh, part of the the sequence covering from 1900 to the present, which I've never done before. And I have to say, as we get to the end of the semester, we're up to the Iraq War, the second Iraq War in 2003. And I'm finding it hard to think of it as history. I didn't study it in grad school because it hadn't happened yet. Uh, and if you're in the boomer demographic uh, along with me, you know that we experienced that war as a as a political event that we supported or opposed at the time, our opinions evolved. And it's very educational now to go back and read what historians over the last 15 years have written about it and uh, and to see whether my opinions that I remember from the time turn out to have been validated by subsequent events or if I my judgment was wrong. And I think it's one of the main reasons why everyone ought to study some history is it's humbling when you read about these events and discover, oh, I was wrong about that. Uh, if, if we could get that into social media where everybody's posts had a little label, the poster below has been wrong about things 80% of the time, uh, then you would know which posts you could skip over entirely and just uh, uh, keep to the people who actually know what they're talking about. The other humbling thing is there are people in my class who actually served in, in Iraq and obviously know far more than I can ever know about certain aspects of the war, which makes me glad to be a student of the American Civil War where there are no veterans uh, to gain say me. I can say anything I want about the Battle of Perryville and no one's going to write it in and say, I was there, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, that's a good thing. Also a good thing is what's coming up next on Civil War Talk Radio next week, James Oakes has a new book, The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. We've got two military veterans, Colonel McCausland and Colonel Vossler, coming up on May 5th with their book about leadership lessons from the Battle of Gettysburg. 
got Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy on May 12th. Barbara Tomlin's the author. And on the 19th, Mark Bielski returns to the show. His new book is called A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. Mark uh, is a, a fellow uh, tour leader for Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, along with me and uh, he reports that the spring tours have been canceled due to the uh, pandemic, but I'm happy to say the October tours are on. I will be leading a tour starting October 8th of 2021. If you want to go, check out Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours website. Love to meet Civil War Talk Radio listeners on those tours. If you can't go, you can still stay abreast of everything happening here at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps it up to date, keeps the PayPal button functioning. You can donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which I used to buy this week's book, I might add. Uh, when, when new books come out, the first thing I do is check East Carolina University's library. And if they don't have a copy, I use the purchase copy button that allows faculty to tell the library to buy the book. And that way the author gets a sale, I get to read the book, and I save room on my shelf, which I don't have any left to spare. Uh, I did that this time, but for some reason the, the book didn't come in in time, so I went and bought my own copy, and I used your generous donations in the past uh, to fund that, so thank you. And the book I bought is called Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. The author is Lauren K. Thompson. Dr. Thompson, are you there? I am. Hi, Cherry. Welcome to the show. Uh, delighted to have you here. Uh, you are not in the baby boomer demographic with me based on your uh, your picture that I see on the screen here on Skype. Uh, and at the other end of your career from where I am, uh, where, where are you teaching these days? Um, yes, I'm a proud millennial. <laughs> um, yes, I am teaching at McKendry University, which is in the metro area of St. Louis. So I'm kind of on the um, fringe of the metro area that extends into Illinois. So McKendry is a small liberal arts college, um, about 25 minutes outside of St. Louis. And I live in St. Louis City, and I'm at my house right now. So I'm live from St. Louis. Excellent. Are, are you teaching uh, online or in person this semester? Person. Um, I am doing a hybrid format where I Zoom with the entire class um, one day a week, and then the other days of the week, I um, meet with half the class. And so I was lucky, though, that my Civil War class this semester has 14 students, and we were put in a very large classroom that fits 70. And so that class is um, every Tuesday, Thursday. So it's in person. Um, so it's nice to be back in the classroom. We're all wearing masks. I think about half of my students are vaccinated now, which is great. Um, so starting to feel a little bit like normal and hope for, hopeful for the fall. Very much so. Same here. Well, I hope that that works out and goes well and congratulations on getting uh getting the career going there with the tenure track position that's I, I had an undergraduate write to me today to ask about whether they should pursue a phd and my advice to everyone is no uh if if that's enough to convince someone not to do it then that's the right move if i tell them no and they 
have enough fire in the belly to try it anyway, they've got a chance. But uh, it's a tough row to hoe, and, and congratulations to you on succeeding. So let me ask you, um, are, uh, are you still there? Did I lose a contact? I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, very good. Yep, I hear you again. Okay, thanks. The sound quality is so good sometimes it just absolutely drops out here. You've written about soldier fraternization, and this is a topic that is – uh, just just knocked me over when I saw the book title. To think everybody in the field knows about this. We've all seen the the illustration on the cover of your book, Edwin Forbes, of the soldiers sitting on a blanket and they are uh, trading coffee and tobacco and newspapers and talking with each other. And, and everyone's seen that picture if you're listening to the show, at least. And no one's ever written a book about this. How did you get this idea? Thank you so much. Yeah, this is one of those things that, you know, everybody's heard about it. Um, public historians, academic historians, popular historians, right? Because we <laughs> see it, um, you know, in both movies, Gettysburg and Gods and Generals. Um, and it's one of those things that is kind of, you know, the 1914 Christmas Eve truce of World War One. Uh, mm -hmm. We hear about Union and Confederates exchanging coffee and tobacco during the Civil War. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things that we've heard about, but nobody has yet to do an in-depth study. And so the way that I came about this topic was I was actually a seasonal park ranger at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park um, when I was doing my master's degree. And I was locking up the visitor center one night after giving battlefield tours and the exhibit in um, FBC, the visitor center right there in front of Marie's Heights, mm -hmm. there was in the basement um, a couple exhibits, but one of them was called Friendly Enemies. And so my book's actually named after that exhibit. And, you know, looking at it and thinking, you know, first of all, it's an oxymoron. And second of all, I had heard of this trade, but I had um, instructions from my advisor at the time, who was Pete Carmichael at West Virginia University. And he said, you know, the summer, Lauren, when you're down in Fredericksburg, keep your eyes and ears open because you need to write a master's thesis and we need to find you a topic. And, you know, something down there might you know, pop out at you. And, and at the time I, you know, didn't know what would come of this, like a master's thesis, let alone an entire book. But when I saw that museum exhibit, I, I got to thinking, you know, and um, I thought maybe there is a record of this in soldiers' letters and diaries. And if I read about it and find it, then maybe I could start to understand why these guys did it, right? Like, was it just boredom? Was it curiosity? Was it guys who say, I'm really cold on picket duty and I need some coffee? Our Confederates want some real coffee and Union soldiers really want a good smoke? Like, what was going on behind these interactions and I really didn't know what I was going to find and I found a few dozen accounts of fraternization on the Rappahannock that that winter after the fighting at Fredericksburg in December before the fighting and the spring campaigning 
which would be Chancellorsville in May 1863. And, you know, when looking at what these men were doing across the Rappahannock, um, it was a lot to unpack. And that became my master's thesis. And I wasn't sure if I could keep going with it. And for my doctoral dissertation, I thought, well, where else is this happening? And when is it happening? And does it change? Is it in other armies? Is it just happening between men from certain states? Is it just happening during winter campaigning? Are there other things being traded? And in that research and in that discovery is when I found how widely these interactions take place over the course of the war and how they evolve and become very important in the final years of the war when armies are besieging one another. And so it began as a glance at a museum exhibit back in 2008. And now this year it's a book um, in our hands that we can really, you know, read and do exactly what we're doing right now, which is have these discussions. Well, that's, uh, it's a great story and a great inspiration to recognize the topics uh, can come out of things like that. And uh, with, with Pete Carmichael, you had a great mentor there. He's at Gettysburg College now, as listeners know, and runs the Civil War Institute there. The, uh, which also is not meeting in person this year, but but certainly a year from June we'll we'll all get together there in Gettysburg. Uh, so you found in the sources this was not just an anecdotal thing that happened one or two times and everybody wrote about it, but that this was actually widespread. Yes, um, the first instance that I found was um, on July twenty first, eighteen sixty one. Um, it was an isolated incident, so I didn't see a lot more around the Manassas campaign, but I found accounts as early as Manassas, and I um, have accounts that go all the way through um, late April in 1865. So I have ex- ex- examples that dot the war, but what I really home in on in the book is where it happens the most frequently. So it is not just a uh... A freak occurrence, but but it's really part of the fabric of the soldiers' existences uh, uh, throughout the war. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back. We're talking tonight with Lauren Thompson. She's the author of Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Lauren Thompson, author of Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. Uh, Lauren, let me start at the, the back end of your book with a question. Is there a... You said in the first segment that this was something that happened throughout the war. You found examples of it as early as the Manassas campaign, as late as April 1865. Uh, it's not just a a fluke occurrence that happens once and then everybody says, oh, that's that's typical. Um, but it, even if it did happen regularly, is there a risk that this is a uh, the kind of thing that can be seized upon for reconciliationist propaganda? Uh, by which I mean, if, if somebody wants to maintain a view of the Civil War as a uh, glorious uh, misunderstanding between brave men of North and South, not fought over any significant political issues, uh, essentially even a lost cause interpretation. This fits right into it, the idea that these brave men of each side were really respected each other and and shook hands when they could. Uh, Is there a risk that, that, that your work can be turned in that direction? Absolutely. And I think, Jerry, this circles back to what we were talking about earlier is maybe a reason why nobody wanted to pick up this topic, right? Somebody felt that this is either going down like a neo-Confederate route, or perhaps it was just a post-war fabrication in order to purvey the notion that you just described, which is this really was brother versus brother, they got along then, they're brave soldiers coming together, and let's ignore the cause and the consequence of the war, right, which is chattel slavery and um, limitation, massive limitations towards Black freedom during the post-war period. And if we just talk about the loyalty and the bravery and the courage and how these are American men coming together, we could ignore kind of the real questions and purvey that lost cause narrative. So absolutely. And I think it is why many scholars dodged it, right? They came across it, they noted it, but it was something that was a risk worth tackling because 
it does minimize a lot of the causes that we as historians are working so hard to write about, or at least um, compete with the lost cause narrative. And so one of the reasons that I go into my last chapter about memory of fraternization and how what I use to make all my arguments and conclusions are only wartime sources. I do not use any soldiers' memoirs of fraternization or recollections or anything that was printed in veterans' magazines because I see that almost as like a fraternization 2.0, right? If we look at the war as like fraternization, this is fraternization 2.0. And honestly, a lot of soldiers want to document their accounts and they just want their family members to remember their service. But we do see in veterans magazines, in the Southern Historical Society papers, and in some other very public um, battlefield speeches and um, commemoration meetings, we see fraternization being very embellished and very fabricated. And it doesn't read um, similar to what happened during the war. And so when we see reconciliationists use fraternization as a way to say, hey, these guys were getting along amidst the bloodshed, so of course we can get along in 1896, right? It kind of minimizes what these actions were about and what purpose they served for the soldiers during the war. And so I address this head on because it was definitely the elephant in the room. Um, And I definitely try to look at how memory and fraternization go hand in hand after the war. But in the introduction and in the first five chapters of my book, I solely look at it from the present perspective of the diaries and letters that men are writing, um, usually the day they are fraternizing, right, or the day they witness it. So the real-time accounts are what I really focused on, on trying to understand where and why it happened during the war. That's an interesting example of how the the field, Civil War historiography, has advanced in the last, uh, say, 25 years, which was when I wrote my dissertation. Uh, I, I will admit I used recollection material uh, a Confederate veteran and National Tribune and uh, battles and leaders and all kinds of things written after the war because I was of a generation that was taught those guys were there, those are primary sources. And of course, we've now come to see, well, yes, but 30 years of memory changed a lot of what they, their motivations for writing and, and the idea of sticking to simply uh, contemporary primary sources, as you've done here, the letters and diaries of the time does uh, separate out the, the subtle differences or sometimes not subtle differences in how these people talk about fraternization. Let, let me ask you, uh, getting back to, to first principles, how do you define fraternization for the purposes of this book? Oh, great. That's such a good question because a lot of times when we look at 
at it in the modern military um, discourse, we think of fraternization between enlisted men and civilians. Um, or another way of looking at it could be with enlisted with their officers, right? So either um, men in the ranks, men and women in the ranks with officers or NCOs. And so that's usually kind of the modern term. In fact, fraternization was not even a term during the Civil War. So um, this is a post-war term used to write a wartime history. So it made the searching in the archives when I was looking for soldiers' letters, it would I would have to search by campaign or look for words like picket duty, coffee, tobacco, trade, river, because soldiers didn't come back from fraternizing and say that they fraternized. They said, I traded coffee with a Yank this morning, right? And so what um, the term meant, or as we as historians have you know, defined the term fraternization during the American Civil War is the discourse and the, I guess you could say, interactions between enemies, so between Union and Confederate soldiers. And in my book, I stick to um, men who are privates and some lower ranking officers. So a few um, captains, a few second lieutenants, and I think I have one instance of a colonel. Um, we know that officers would call white flags of truth or sometimes um, have their wives brought through the lines or something like that. But I don't look at officer fraternization because I think that's a different set of variables and privilege. So just looking at the common soldiers in the ranks, mostly infantry, I have the dozen or so cavalry men who fraternize and I included them as well. But for the most part, it is um, a common soldier who is um, making a choice to converse and have interactions with someone of their stature and their rank on the opposite side. You start the book with an interesting observation about the nature of, of social relationships among men before the war, that in American society, um, uh, th- there were ways that men related to each other that have evolved. There, there's a tendency, especially among undergraduates, to assume that the way things are now is the way things have always been for things like, uh, like friendships. But, but can you talk about how friendship or male bonding differed uh, in the antebellum era? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there are continuities um, across American manhood, but definitely in the antebellum era, we see a generation of men, um, both in terms of especially the middle class, but also the working class are going through um, a lot of change. And a lot of that change is causing failure in some aspects. And because men are expected to be in the private or excuse me, the public sphere and um, be the breadwinners and become political political activists and um, are being replaced by certain machinery, uh, but at the same time trying to get their land and show their individualism, um, they are in turn, needing an outlet to express their frustrations, their emotions. And usually we see that, you know, men go to women. Um, but on the battlefield, we know there are not women. 
Um, and so for the most part, and so mm-hmm. looking for kind of what men did in the pre-war antebellum period is a lot of these men came of age in a time of great political and economic change and division. And so one of those places where men found um, relief was in their relationships with other men and forming homosocial relationships, specifically in fraternal organizations. Um, And if they weren't official orders or lodges, they were bars and pubs and churches and um, places where, and shops, uh, places where men could come together to air their frustrations and their grievances and be able to continue with um, their their work and their, their quest for capital and mastery. And so I begin that chapter because the men who are citizens um, are thrust into this combat as citizen soldiers. And so they take what they learned in their adolescent years um, and bring that to the battlefield. And so that's kind of where I see fraternization that develops as a way to cope with the harsh realities and the um, the experiences that they're having. And we know, and there's been so much literature in the historiography that the number one kind of um, way to seek relief is through your, your close comrades, right? That small unit cohesion is where most men will find relief and the ability to put their, literally put their guard down and have those relationships and that comfort. But occasionally, as we see with fraternization, that will cross over into enemy lines as well. Uh, well, you point out also that these these young men who are seeking independence and independent identity in a society, now that they're in, they've, they've joined the army because that's what a young man is supposed to do, uh, but they find themselves powerless. Uh, uh, they're not independent. They're told what to wear, what to eat, what to do all day. And you suggest this is a form of, of rebellion that's not as drastic as desertion and not as lacking in self-control as drunkenness. It's sort of a, a perfect middle ground. You can, you're still in the army, but you're thumbing your nose at your officers who don't want you doing this. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a form of resistance, but it's one that does not, it's, it's a, a form of resistance that men talk about in their letters and diaries, right? Very seldomly do we see a man write a letter home to his wife that says, I was drunk last night and I'm under court martial, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or I'm in Lynchburg. I left the Rapidan. I'm, I'll be home, right? Like, so a lot of men will not um, talk about that. They're quick to point out when others do, right? But they're very unwilling to share things that they know are wrong. But they're very open about fraternization in their letters home. And so it seems that it's something that is respectable amongst their common their comrades, but also respectable to their families and friends where they see it just as you said, this intermediary form of resistance where they do kind of thumb their nose at their officers and say, you know, I'm still a man, I'm still in control. This is a small form of um, dissent, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily have them or their peers questioning the all-important 
notion of courage and commitment, right? It doesn't question their commitment to the cause and their courage as a soldier. So it becomes kind of this way men can remain in control of themselves and do certain things to improve their circumstances without jeopardizing their standing in the army amongst their peers and their families. But it was against the rules and people did get punished for it, did they not? They did. And that is where the court martial records do show um, not only that were there about four dozen court martial cases regarding fraternization, it was articles or it was Article 57, which meant um, relieving the enemy with victuals or having intercourse and communications between the lines. And so it most certainly was illegal. Um, officers continually, continuously passed um, memor- or, um, I'm sorry, leaflets about this. And when men came back from picket duty, they would have inspections. They would send secret officers out um, on picket duty or have officer of the day. And so they tried to find ways to curtail it and it was against orders. And so of the few dozen court martial cases we see for fraternization, about half of the men are found guilty. And some of the charges are three months hard labor, some are forfeiture of pay, um, And a few will cause, I guess you could say, like the damaging reputation where you stand in front of your unit and you are, these charges are read out loud, right? So public humiliation. And so relatively light sentences in comparison to what some of the other court-martial sentences are. But I think that those light sentences kind of um, follow the notion that even the officers knew that fraternization might have been happening and it wasn't seen as detrimental as desertion or misbehavior or drunkenness or some of the more egregious things that we see Civil War soldiers resorting to. Well, you point out the, the, the one circumstance under which there might be really serious military consequences for this kind of fraternization is when the men exchange newspapers because uh, newspapers could be a form of military intelligence and could reveal something uh, to the other side. It's hard to imagine they wouldn't have other access to it, but but certainly that's at least a remote possibility. Uh, We're going to take another short break in just a minute. What I want to do when we come back is ask you about uh, how this actually played out. You mentioned uh, the, the picket lines, the idea that these troops are stationed outside of their own camps, uh, relatively adjacent, relatively close. Uh, so we'll, we'll take a short break. We'll come back and find out how fraternization actually worked on the ground. When we talk more with our guest tonight, Lauren Thompson, author of Friendly Enemies, Social Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. 
the Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Lauren Thompson, author of Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. We've been talking about this phenomenon of soldiers communicating, uh, Confederate and Union soldiers communicating with each other uh, in those intervals between battles. And, and, Lauren, this is what I wanted to ask you about. When, when, when and where does this actually take place? That's such a great question because one of the things that um, a lot of people ask me when they hear about my topic is, tell me about the fraternization at Gettysburg um, and tell me the fraternization at Antietam and at some of our bloodiest battles, um, men are not, they're not positioned together for quite long periods of time, right? They come to these places, these positions, they slaughter each other for a few days and then they retreat. And so men, um, are not together for long periods of time at some of the places that we know best. And so the places in which fraternization happen the most frequently is where armies are positioned across one another for long periods of time. And so that in the first few years of the war is winter encampment. And so when men um, specifically on the Rappahannock, in between um, Fredericksburg in December 62 and Chancellorsville in December 63, the Army of the Potomac, the Army of Northern Virginia are literally across the Rappahannock from one another. And they're in, I'm making quotes with my fingers, winter quarters, right? And so they're not supposed to bring on a general engagement, but they're still men who are down on the lines for picket duty. And picket duty was something that was like drill, right? It was something to keep men busy. Um, and it was a way for one unit at a time, a few companies to go down to the banks of the river and have their kind of station for a 24 hour period to notify their commander if they see the enemy making any aggressive moves, right? Any kind of um, maneuvers or anything that looks like they might be 
in mass and ready to move out of their position. And so for the most part, the threat of danger was relatively low um, because most men knew that nothing would be happening in mid-February. It was cold. It was the winter. And they knew that um, there was not going to be you know, much fighting anytime soon. And so during this time is when we see um, the trade of coffee and tobacco, newspapers, um, joking between the lines, a lot of uh, banter going back and forth and talks about, you know, if we could just hang Abe Lincoln and Jeff Davis from the same tree, we could all just go home, right? Or let the generals come down here and fight it out and us fighting men can go back to our wives, right? And so we see a lot of that kind of jovial empathy because the threat is relatively low. The other place where fraternization or where men are going to be across from one another for long periods of time is kind of the opposite of winter encampment. And that is where the threat of danger is extremely high, which is at sieges, right? Or when armies besiege one another. And so what I see or what I gained from my investigation of reading over about 500 soldiers' uh, manuscripts to see where fraternization happened most frequently, aside from these times when they were camped together in winter quarters, um, was in the places where they were for long periods of time, but it was to besiege one another. So Vicksburg, Chattanooga, Atlanta and Petersburg, those four sieges um, is where we see the most fraternization. And now I will say before I mentioned um, Gettysburg and Antietam, um, I will say sometimes when you have like the very long like ambulance and like wounded train of men, right, you might see armies catch a glimpse of one another and we might see small acts of amnesty or in Tennessee when armies are moving through, you know, the mountainous terrain, they might catch glimpses of one another and like one time um, before Chickamauga, um, we see Union and Confederate soldiers swimming in a creek in August of 63, right? Um, and they let one another swim, and it becomes this swimming party. So we do see these times when soldiers will catch glimpses of one another. But during the sieges, um, this is when fraternization is going to evolve from like the jokes and the swimming parties and the trade of coffee and tobacco into a new form of fraternization that actually I think, and I argue in the book, is the most practical and the most life-saving example or life-preserving example of fraternization that we see throughout the war. And that is the negotiation of ceasefires. And that I think is probably the most significant use of fraternization because no longer is it about fun or curiosity or to just get something, you know, to alleviate the boredom, but it is when men are going to work together to say a lot of this, you know, um, fire that is, you know, coming back and forth into our, our earthworks and into our picket line. And, and now that's entrenched is, is, difficult we can't we're on we're on guard 24 7 right and we are 
nearing the end of the war and it begins to seem more like murder and less like combat and men are going to extend over to the other side um, to negotiate the ceasefire to lessen hostilities. That that really reflects how warfare has evolved since 1860s in that uh, you know, early in the war, I, I recall reading an example of uh, the force making a cavalry raid on Memphis and, and killing some Union pickets and the Union general protesting the, the word that you just used, murder. So killing these pickets is just murder. It's not part of warfare. Uh, war is when two armies meet on a battlefield. But of course, today... Uh, anywhere around the world or anywhere in the Second World War, uh, if you saw someone in the other uniform, you shot at them immediately. There was no no, no distinction between battle and non-battle. Uh, battle was happening all the time. And you're suggesting by 1864 and certainly 65, that's already happening in the sieges of the, of the American Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. Because as we see combat change, um, men start to reconfigure their notion of what it means to be in combat, right? Because before we see sieges begin to happen, starting at Vicksburg, um, there's kind of a very definitive line between what is the camp, right? What is other soldiering duties like, you know, foraging or cutting wood. And then there's combat, right? Mm -hmm. But when we see the camp life and soldiering activities and combat merge into all the same space, right? Instead of these definitive compartmentalized spaces, now they've all merged into this siege or this trench warfare. And so no longer are men able to say this is a time of rest or this is a time of labor, but my life is not in any danger. And when all that becomes merged, um, you know, even though sieges help lessen the bloodshed that we see at some of these early campaigns where we see the frontal assaults, right? Um, it does cause a lot of, I guess you could say, stress on men's bodies um, and the fatigue in not having those breaks and constantly having to be on guard. And so as warfare changes, men are going to also reconfigure um, what it means to be brave, um, what it means to survive, and no longer is it about necessarily, you know, being able to go into these large, you know, campaigns and have the courage to come out alive, but more to kind of withstand the mental and the physical toll that the sieges take on them um, because sieges are slow, right? They're slow. And for the home front and for the soldiers, they take a long time to play out. And so during that fatigue and during those long, you know, Petersburg is right. Nine, 10 months long. Right. And they, they have, you know, we look in hindsight in, in March 65 say, you know, just hang on three more weeks. It'll be over, but they don't know that. Right. And so right. if they can find a way to survive the day or put their guard down for an hour or two and not have to worry about the threat of enemy fire, it's a way, you know, it's a small victory. It's a way to survive the day. And I think that's how men change their relationship with the enemy at this time is now he's not somebody that I can, you know, get a smoke from or a paper to alleviate boredom, but he's a way that I can negotiate the lessening of hostilities to 
as a means of self-preservation. So, so the soldiers at the front lines are the ones who effectively negotiate these these ceasefires, these truces, without the officers approving them. Uh, in just a few minutes that we have left, uh, one point you make that I thought was very interesting is that these are not universal practices in the Eastern uh, theater in 1865 when you start to see the USCT deployed, United States Colored Troops. Uh, do they partake of, of ceasefires and meetings between the lines with Confederates? I'm so glad you brought this up. And this is something that is a massive takeaway of my of my book and something that um, is really going to be a rehearsal for Reconstruction. Because when we see USCTs in Petersburg um, enter the ranks and fight alongside their white comrades in blue, um, we will see that when USCTs are on picket duty, um, we're going to see Confederate soldiers most definitely not honor those ceasefires. And if anything, they keep up a constant fire on the Black Union men. And I see that this is kind of their um, anger and frustration that a new world order is coming and that seeing Black men in uniform not only shows Black equality and masculinity and citizenship, but it also shows that the union has made strides to defeat them in more ways than just on the battlefield. And so um, Confederate soldiers are really going to unleash hell on these USCTs. And unfortunately, um, we see some Union soldiers um, not talk with their comrades in color um, or say, you know, difficult, you know, pretty um, derogatory things and, and, mm-hmm. and, ha- and not have difficult conversations about um, race and equality for black men after the war, especially to these men who fought alongside them. But then they fraternize with their enemy. And so I think what we see here is a lot of times we say, not until after Appomattox, do we really look at what reconstruction is going to be like. Um, but if you look at what's happening um, with this notion of race and um, gender in the trenches at Petersburg, we don't have to wait to see how the post-war period is going to play out. And we are going to see white men come together at the expense of um, black men and freed men. And so a lot of times we look for like the post-war jubile earlies, right? And how they're going to um, make this, these negotiations and um, perpetuate this lost cause. And Obviously, these soldiers in the ranks um, didn't have any ulterior motives or any kind of political motive behind it. But we can already see that white supremacy um, is very inherent in fraternization. And it's, as I say in the book, is a litmus test for what we'll see play out in the Reconstruction period. Uh, I think that's it's a fascinating observation in the book that that the. uh, uh, It's not surprising that white Confederate soldiers will be un willing to accept black soldiers in blue and will shoot at them rather than honor a ceasefire or certainly not trade with them. But your your point that the uh, white Union soldiers will continue to uh, negotiate with and honor and respect their white Confederate opponents uh, in ways whereas they will not stand by uh, in the same way their, their black Union comrades, uh, uh, that they prioritize race over uh, you know, loyalty and patriotism in this case. It's, it's quite, uh, uh, quite. I, I won't say surprising at all, but, but 
quite distressing. Uh, well, we're unfortunately out of time. This is a really interesting book. It is a relatively brief book. I, I, you point out in the acknowledgments, it's based on your dissertation, and uh, we've come a long way from those 500-page dissertations of the 1980s that were so intimidating and no one read them after they were submitted, uh, to books that get to the point and tell us a story and have something interesting to say and something new to say, uh, which this book certainly does. Uh, it's called Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. The author is Lauren K. Thompson. Listeners, you'll enjoy reading this. And Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. Thank you so much, Jerry. I really enjoyed this talk. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.